John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. accessed entry 056.EX3729, certificate number 26207. Anything into oil. Uh, you recycle, I'm guessing. I do. I um, recycle so much that I have more recyclables than unrecyclables in my garbage. And I actually switched to a smaller garbage can and a bigger recycling bin. Yeah, it's the ultimate Seattle success story. Except that I hear now that it's all a scam and China doesn't want our cardboard anymore. So most of my recycling is for not. Have you heard this? Yes, I have. Do you Do you have a feeling that maybe... Recycling is some kind of environmental theater or like uh, virtue signaling. I remember the first time I saw a 60 minutes or a 48 hours or whatever it was about the inefficiencies of recycling. It really did break my little, (laughs) you know, seventh grade conservationist heart because I really thought I was helping. And, you know, it turns out the margins on a lot of these recycling markets are incredibly thin, I guess. A, a, lot, of, a lot of things make sense. Aluminum makes sense. Yeah. Um, but it's, a lot of other things are on the bubble. And our house produces a ton of cardboard because we um, stock our lives in the most efficient way. Mm-hmm. By having Amazon bring you we, toilet paper. We have Amazon bring <laughs> us everything one at a time. <laughs> From wherever it comes from. Giant truck driving across town to bring you five big pens. I think lately it's been like an Uber guy. And and I kind of wonder if it's like an Amazon employee on his way to work who's been asked to, you know, make up a quota this quarter or something. How much do you process your recycling before you send it out? Like, do you take packing tape off of cardboard boxes or do you just throw the boxes in? I feel like the the show should be an hour of this. (laughs) This would be the ultimate Seattle podcast. Full of staples and covered with pizza sauce. I remember once, so obviously if there's a pizza box that has even a little bit of grease on it, I'll be like, you, sir, are no longer recycling. But do you put it into the food waste? It becomes compost. Right, compost. Um, But you're, are you 
looking at that carefully to see if it's waxed or in other ways impregnated with? I tend to spend about 90 minutes a day playing the, is this wax paper or is this coated with something biodegradable game, which is a ton of fun. It is. I remember one, because it's different, you know, if this if it's plasticky, yeah. then that's mm, not know, biodegradable. But it might be recyclable. But if it's wax, maybe it is compostable. If it's got pizza sauce on it, it can't be. You know, I keep the waste management recycling guidelines posted with a magnet in my kitchen. Right. Not on the a non-magnetic refrigerator, but over on the other magnet board. I also have it. Ha- you have it handy at all handy times. Handy at all times. And I probably read it more than the Bible. Yes. <laughs> but it you, is my Bible. But you do get a sense that a lot of it, that, that, that it projects a certain confidence that once you've done this sorting, once you've taken the lids off of certain size plastic bottles, but other lids are okay. And, and once you've filtered it through your pachinko game of different, <laughs> qua, you know, like considerations that then you're handing it off to teams of people who are going to recycle it efficiently into new products, you know, softer playground equipment and stronger cardboard boxes on the other end. Those park benches that say they're made out of milk cartons. Right. Yeah, the the effect is always, if you, the customer, will just do these fun, easy steps, there's this whole apparatus in place that makes the earth good again. And you don't want to think that it all, on the other side, you know, it's picked up by seven different trucks, but on the other side, it's all dumped into a shipping container and, and thrown into the ocean. Is that true? Well, please tell me that's not true. To a greater or lesser degree, I no, mean, but also yes. Because you're not joking about how like any time you spend actually looking at the rules, you will start to go down these rabbit holes in your head like, wait, this cardboard still does have packing tape on it. Right. And it says that I can put all my junk mail in the recycling, but it, some of it has those little see-through windows for the address. Some of that is... How can that be the same recycling as the envelopes? What What is going on some here? Of it is, some of it isn't. It all the, seems very implausible. The The crazy thing about recycling is, and you know, recycling isn't universal. I was just uh, on the island of Maui and they're not really pursuing, and you would think they would, right? I mean, you would think that uh, you would, if you were on a closed economy or like an island... Uh, that you they would, would be care more than anyone. Yeah, you would try to make that as efficient a system as you could, but they weren't. They weren't even looking for compost or recycling at all. It all just was like garbage into the garbage. If you travel from Seattle to anywhere, your first day is all just disappointment over yeah. the slipshod because we have to recycle. We have literally four bins. You can't have as many as four bins. We, we I am. I feel very lucky. I have Seattle kitchen privilege, which is we have actually redone our kitchen since the last reordering of recycling. So we actually have a kitchen built for the three different things you need. <laughs> so nice. Whereas everybody else who, you know, doesn't have a compost thing in their kitchen is like, oh, do I have to remodel my whole kitchen? Yeah, you put your compost over in some smelly you to, little bucket. You have to have bucket. a weird bucket yeah. somehow, like a farmer. For, for many, many years now, decades, the promise of recycling has tantalized us because there are technologies to to recycle an awful lot of consumer end products that would otherwise go into the garbage. And it's just a question of how do you scale it and then how do you sort it? Because in most cases, you cannot just dump a bucket of unsorted glass, cardboard, plastic, and metal into any single machine 
where that that's a useful sort of aggregate. Every time I take out my trash, I'm picturing a giant version of one of those coin sorters that you can yeah. get at Sharper Image, and it can tell by the weight what's a quarter and what's a dime. But do you know what the process is like? Is it, is it automated in any way? Well, I mean, there are there are systems where humans are sorting, recycling stuff that all went into a single hopper and are picking and putting stuff in various piles to be recycled differently. Um, but so there's somebody a, is double checking my work. Yeah, absolutely. Well, because your recycling bin has paper, glass. Metal, I mean, yeah. even if you are extremely diligent about washing out all your tin cans and taking the lids off your water bottles. Which, duh, of course I am. <laughs> but still it has to go somewhere and be sorted. And it isn't, we do not have machines that are big pachinko games where at the at the bottom all the metal just went over here and all the plastic went over there. Now if you go to a, like a salvage yard where they're actually doing metal salvage, they use magnets to take all the ferro-based metals and they recycle them separately. Aluminum is more valuable. Copper, you know, they, there's plenty of reason for them to... Copper's s- all been stolen by junkies. So. Right, and it's expensive. You can, uh, you know, aluminum and copper, they'll pay you more. Aluminum's not magnetic, right? So there's no magnetic right. solution to suck out all your cans. Right, but, but people that are in the metallurgical culture... Uh, are good at, at sorting through and finding all these. But, you know, a lot of copper wire, a lot of that, that stuff is encased in plastic. There, there are always problems in taking this post-consumer garbage and turning it into anything. This is the problem we have when we want to recycle electronics. We, right. we know there's stuff in there that's me, the home user, or somebody trying to make a business model out of this. We know there's stuff in there that's sure, valuable. There's, there's platinum in a lot of those things. But what's your plan? Like, how are you getting that out there, prospector? And so... Our desire to recycle far exceeds our ability to recycle even now. And a lot of it is just cost-benefit analysis. Is It's still cheaper in most cases to get raw crude oil out of the ground, ship it to places, process it down into, you know, 10,000 different ways into different plastics, produce that plastic into containers, use it one time and throw it out the window than it is to actually sort through the garbage that we produce and recycle it. In the long term, it would be much better, more efficient for the planet. It's just for the company doing it today, right. the numbers don't add up. And the, this is, I think, the problem with with China not wanting our cardboard anymore. They would rather just go cut down a forest right? because it's a little cheaper. And it, it's another example of how economics as a system, as a ideology, if you will, um, is a kind of, in, it, it's incomplete because it doesn't really take into consideration all the inputs and all the outputs. It's a complete, it's a functioning system if you think that natural resources are infinite. We call those externalities, <laughs> externalities. In, in Econ 101, which is where my <laughs> economics knowledge stops and starts. No, are you suggesting that capitalism is not perfectly uh, efficient uh, for all parties involved? I'm suggesting that there's a reason why the Nobel Prize for Economics is actually a Nobel. It's actually kind of, it's actually kind of a booby prize. The Nobel plaque. <laughs> it's like an old repurposed bowling trophy. Yeah. Economists would like you to believe that they are practicing science, but there are an awful lot of 
things that they don't take into consideration in order to make their models clean. Because here's the thing about chemistry. You don't have like three competing schools of chemists disputing the basic <laughs> tenets of, of stoichiometry and chemistry. Right. Just how the math should work the way you do in economics. Right. It is an art as much or more than a science. But what makes this all so so tantalizing is that we do have the technologies to recycle most of these things. It is possible to do, and it isn't extremely prohibitively expensive. It's just, in most cases, you know, slightly more expensive than just doing it a really so, awful way. So we'll do zero of it. And, you know, when you get, when you think about the way that the government treats water um, or butter or cheese, you know, the, the government is engaged in subsidizing a lot of different industries, paying the manufacturers of milk to keep prices up to su sustain certain communities of farmers. Yeah. And they're just, they're willing to pour that milk down the drain in order to keep the economic sort of system again, working, all the components kind of working. And the petroleum industry is heavily subsidized by the government in a lot of different ways. Thank goodness. Yeah, I know. Those they, guys are finally going to catch a break. I mean, they really need our help. Just <laughs> just like the just like the defense department. They you know. give and they give and they give and it's nice that we're finally giving back. And we have tried to and we are continuing to try to progress toward more biofuels, um, fuels that are made out of the waste of agriculture. Well, can I ask you about that? Yeah. Because I tend to think of that in the same category as the government throwing money at dairy because they're worried about Wisconsin voters or whatever. Um, like my understanding is that lots of these biodiesel and, and ethanol kinds of products are still very inefficient, right? And on, they only compete through government subsidy. Yeah. The government. Is, is there any exit strategy for that? Like, like I can see helping electric cars to you know, make them more profitable when they're an infant industry, but is that true of ethanol? Like, should we be propping up corn oil? Our desire to achieve energy independence from the global or oil cartels right. have pushed us over the years to look for a lot of solutions to, to the fact that we don't generate as much oil and gas within our national borders as we use. It's just Catan. You, you, have, you don't have enough oil. You have too much corn. Right. At any time in your turn, you can turn four corn into one oil. There's very little long-term benefit or there's very little, it's not like the best thing in the world that we have converted so many millions of acres of our agricultural output to just making crap corn to turn into either crap animal feed or crap uh, sugar. Yeah, sweetener for, uh, you know, that maybe caused an obesity epidemic. And it's, uh, there's no more genetic diversity in corn and it's it, putting it into gas tanks. You know, it's, it's an improvement over polluting the Gulf of Mexico with a giant, like, oil spill. Yes, or maybe giving outsized geopolitical power to a, to a, a, a you know, a Middle Eastern evil monarchy. Right, or South American one. Right. Um, but the fact that we have produced so much waste out of petroleum products, out of mined minerals, out of I mean, think about all the different... Uh, I hate uh, to think about it. Think about all the cardboard. I mean, you're, as you're Did, saying, the, the forests and, and every time they tear down a house and take the material that constitutes a built house, put it in a dumpster and dump it into the ground. Did this weigh on you as a kid, by the way? It did. Like just this idea that um, 
we were just piling up garbage. And remember that garbage barge that couldn't find a home? Yeah. So it kept sailing up and down the eastern seaboard. Looking and I was just like, this is the future. Piles of garbage everywhere. Like it really weighed on me psychologically. It always has for me. Uh, the idea that we were dumping garbage in the oceans. Right. The idea that landfills were filling up. And you know, it's a thing they do today. This is, I don't, do they do this everywhere? Or is this just very Seattle? That It's no longer garbage recycling and compost. Now it's compost recycling and landfill. Landfill. Like they want you to think every time you throw something in what used to be the default bin, hey, guess what? You're just adding to that psychological weight of those garbage right. barges tolling the seas. And what's nice in Seattle, because when you take your uh, stuff to the dump, you actually take it here to a, a garbage processing center, yes. a waste intermediary. I've only been once. I took a mattress. I go all the time. Do they, are they like, John? Uh, they're not quite, it's not, I'm not that, quite that chummy with them, but watching the transfer stations at work here is really informative and because people drive up in their cars and trucks, they throw all their garbage into a pit. There are people driving giant front end loaders, you know, massive, massive vehicles. Little Star Wars scavengers pop out of the pit. All that kind of stuff. (laughs) And they separate it out and they have tug of wars over it. There are imperial uh, droids (laughs) of all all manner and shape. Uh, But then they compact this sort of general garbage, uh, which is made up of Ken Jennings's mattress, a bunch of old futons, refrigerators, all this stuff. And there's a certain amount of sorting that happens, but a lot of it just gets compacted down and put into a shipping container, which is taken via truck to the train, to the railroad yard where it's loaded on a train and the train takes it to far off Oregon where there there are giant, giant miles and miles of Seattle's garbage just being piled up and watching it all happen and understanding it as a system uh, it does not make you feel any better. It's in, in a lot of ways just like this is, I, we cannot possibly. It's like watching ants kill a leaf. Yeah. Like the, <laughs> like the more of the human scale of human effect you can see, you're like, no, oh, oh, no, no, no. Close back up, close back up. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's an extraordinary system that, it, that involves all of us. And really we think of it the same way that we do when we flush the toilet. Like yeah. uh, you flush the toilet and you think it's gone. Dust off your hands. <laughs> in fact, problem it, solved. it's on its way to a great adventure and your garbage, is, it's even more true. Yeah, the problem is just beginning actually for society when we think it's over. So when I was younger, I had this sense that one day these giant landfills, um, and a lot of them have been covered over and turned into public parks as cities grew to encompass what used to be the edge of town. And now it's like, oh, we're building an elementary school right next to that dump. I always understood the the arc of history, the, the fact that time is a flat circle, to include the possibility that those would become future mines um, that all that garbage, which we now think of as not worth recycling, the cost would exceed the benefit. Uh, that won't always be true. If we really are going to run out of oil reserves one day, if we really will have mined out all the precious metals that are close to the surface, we will turn our attention back to these garbage dumps one day. It's inevitable that scarcity will change the map. Right. And say, home, you know, there's a lot of good stuff in those and we'll... It's still hard to get it out of there. It's just easier than anywhere else. Right. We'll reopen those and start processing that garbage for all of the constituent material. And that's when we all turn into little Star Wars scavenger aliens. 
And uh, uh, on my the first podcast I ever did, which is still going, uh, the internationally acclaimed Roderick on the Line. Hopefully still known in the future. Uh, surely it will be. Uh, we have a we have an ongoing theme based on this idea called Super Train, which is that there would be a train that traveled around the country with a giant claw, and the claw would reach into old garbage dumps, and and the train itself would be. Is the train really the right medium for this? Well, the thing is that uh, my idea was that each car of the train would be another step in the process of recycling the material, so that at the end of the train. You would have it could just spit out the finished stuff. Just, well, but the thing is, it would be a post-apocalyptic environment, so the train would also be kind of like snow pusher. It would be also a class, a tiered society. And, but it gets in this case, op, unlike Snowpiercer, it's better at the caboose because that's where the finished product ends up. Well, no, you never want to be at the end of an industrial process. Oh, you I always see what want you're the the best part the of good the train stuff is, has already come out. Yeah, it's all all toward the front. Don't um, you have to build an awful lot of track for this? Well, that's the thing about Super Train. It would be also track building. So it's the front of the train is laying it, track of itself. Like a yeah. Wallace and Gromit cartoon. Yeah, that's right. Um, but in recent years, as you can imagine, technology, recycling technology, all the chemistry and biochemistry that goes into new abilities to recycle and manufacture recyclables all of that has been chasing ahead. We're we're much more able to do this work now than we ever were. Which kind of ties into the whole, don't worry, technology will save us from eco-hazard X. That's right. That is the- that We have is to the, keep one step ahead. Although I don't know if technology has ever been ahead of eco-hazard X. Hmm. Well, I mean, eco-hazard X being chlorofluorocarbons and the and the decimation of our- uh, That's true. Ozone uh, hole, we, we, technology got ahead of that. And activism. Yeah, one treaty, I guess. I'm, I'm, but I'm sure technology, too, we found substitutes. And we, yeah, we found substitutes and we understood the nature of the problem, which was another sort of... Yeah, what's uh, causing this? Yeah, that that would not have happened without the science. Right. And it was an example of, I mean, chlorofluorocarbons are an example of science and activism and politics all coordinating, coming up with a pretty simple solution. And then that solution had an incredible effect. Also, you know, the a lot of the Endangered Species Act uh, stuff actually has produced great results. A lot of species that were on the verge of extinction have recovered. Same for Clean Air and Clean Water Act. Um, although I, I have to admit, I don't know how much of that is driven by, you know, technologies that would not have existed at the time and how much of that is just political will. I think in a lot of cases, um, you know, DDT, for example, was yeah. was uh, a necessary chemical in its time for the remediation of like disease-bearing insects, and then we found new ways to deal with them. And your mom hates birds, so she must have loved the idea that we were killing all the birds by making their eggshells super thin. Well, she also hates insects, and she hates scientists. A lot of the time, the political will will can produce the technology, yeah. or you know, or at least that's the effect you want to see. You know, if the state of California says we want this emissions target, suddenly scientists and industry are scurrying to meet a target, and uh, you know, you get you get the moonshot basically. Right. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. 
Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. In the case of recycling, like, polycarbons and mixed waste, the technology had been, the various technologies were available to us for a long time, but they were incredibly expensive. And a lot of that expense comes from the fact that, that heat plays a big role in processing strings of carbon. Right? That's I mean, where all the fossil fuels came from, right? right? And fossil fuels are the product of taking single-celled organisms, little, little uh, bugs and, you know. Little algaes and yeah, whatnot. And compressing them for millennia in an environment, in a plate tectonic environment where, uh, where they're subjected to heat and pressure for long enough that they form these, you know, pretty short carbon chains. It's not actually dinosaur bones, by the way. Sinclair was lying to you all the time by implying right. that they were pumping... Dinosaur remains into your car, which still, I mean, I don't, I don't know why that's a sales point. Really, it seems like kind of an ignominious end for the mighty dinosaurs. Well, sure, but, you know, also ignominious end for the mighty algae and plankton sure. of the past. I guess it's just harder to put plankton on a sign. Look, it's Pete Plankton, the symbol of uh, plankton gas. I don't know. Isn't, doesn't the plankton play a pretty large role in SpongeBob SquarePants universe? That's true. We're in a post-SpongeBob world yeah. where we're... Every nine-year-old knows more about marine biology than I do. <laughs> How I hate it. But the problem industrially of creating an environment like the underside of a continental plate required that... Have they not seen your kitchen? <laughs> oh! Oh, I, I would, I'd hit the bell, but I can't reach it from here. That's not a really a pun. It's, it's more like a, a, a lame roast. Well, no, we've established that I don't hit the bell for any puns. So the lame roast is as close as you're going to get to a reward. But in order to create that pressure and that heat for that uh, material to process itself, it, it took a tremendous amount of energy. And you need to use, you, you use more energy than it produces. That was the problem, right? It, it could produce, it could take plastic and turn it back into oil, but you would have to burn all that oil. We just need barrels and barrels of oil <laughs> to get these few drops out. But with enough government subsidies... Get, let's get the Senate involved. Uh, but in the throughout the sort of eighties and into the into the nineties, a scientist by the name of Paul Baskus was working on developing an insight that he had, which was that a lot of the work, a lot of the energy that was being used to process this material, was being used to burn off the water and to reduce the, in, in sort of, in a one-step process to take the material and to take a, a, a very kind of complex aggregate of stuff and turn it into oil or a useful 
byproducts. You just want it to be one thing. In sort of one big thing. You a certain kind of long carbon molecule and right. you don't care about the rest. And he understood that, or he his insight was that if you made it a, a two-stage process or a multi-stage process and you used the water and pressure, instead of trying to take the water out of the process, you you actually used the water in the process or introduced water into the process. And Ooh, a little, little chemical jujitsu yeah, there. A little flipperoo. Use the water against itself. You could, uh, you could create a pressure environment that did sort of an initial breakdown of the organic material. And then in kind of an, an innovative way, release the pressure very suddenly so that the water the water evaporated itself or it was the, the water actually, you didn't have to burn it off. You didn't have to pump it out. It it, would, somehow you could create a chemical condition where it just wanted to be evaporated. It was the dry, it was a drop, a sudden drop in pressure from a high pressure to a low pressure that the water squeegeed itself out of the process. And then you had this, this slurry that now was a much a drier slurry that then you could process a, a second time. And that in that secondary process, the slurry would would chemically break itself down into these very short chain molecules that really were were uh, in these short chains they were their essential form right so his machine and his process would take for instance any kind of bundle of organic material and out the other side you would get a pretty light refined crude oil and the texas tea Texas tea. Black Texas gold. Tea. No, but but lighter, like uh, almost light, like c- cooking oil. Brown gold. Uh, gold, gold, gold. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah Golden that's, gold. That's my favorite color, gold, like a, a nice Wesson gold. And then you'd have pure carbon, just black carbon, and then whatever the essential minerals were in little piles, you know, a little, little pile of platinum, a little pile of copper, a little, I mean, it would reduce It's a it. little Star Trek weapon that can just turn everything into a pile of 10 things. Yeah. And he, he found a way to do this where the process was, it required much less heat going in. It could be scaled and was efficient to the degree that it only really required 15% of the energy potential of the oil it was producing to run the machine, meaning it was 85% efficient. He must've thought he was Henry Ford. He he's, was going to reshape the world economy. Like if, if that's for real, you know, Nobel Prize and... Right. Like, well, he was pretty psyched about himself, but of course he recognized he wasn't a businessman. This is often true of inventors. They come up with a great idea, but marketing, producing and marketing the thing is not often like in the skill set of an inventor. And it goes the other way. Often the people with desk jobs just think of bad ideas, bad ideas. all the time. And so in this case, he must have felt very lucky uh, when he met and partnered with a man by the name of Brian Appel. And Brian was a business person who recognized the incredible potential of this, of this invention, mm-hmm. which was, I guess, the, um, the way they described it was thermal depolymerization. This so is, this is the technical term for his discovery? Yeah, that uh, catalytic thermal depolymerization. And Brian Apple, TDP, TDP, got to have an acronym. That's, that's how it'll catch on. Brian Apple saw that this was a revolutionary technology and what it needed was a business person to bring it unto the world. And in the late nineties, they built a 
sort of a test platform of this system in Philadelphia and started running material into the machine. Now, you said anything into oil. That's right. Is that really true? Like, what, what are the inputs? Like, can you really turn anything into oil? So their test bed there in Philadelphia, uh, they were putting... Cheese sticks. Cheese sticks. I mean, they were putting everything they could think of into this machine. And at a small scale, they were able to kind of tweak the, because everything needs a different combination of heat and water. And Right. If you're putting tires as well as fingernails, slaughterhouse awful in there, like right. that's it's, not the same conditions you need to go to work on that, I assume. But, but at a small scale, the machine at the process seemed to be able to take a really undifferentiated input stream that really kind of was like chopped up tires and, and bird beaks and um, old tennis shoes and through this process produce, produce very efficiently an end result of more or less clean water, clean enough to go into the, a city system. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe not, you wouldn't want to sit and drink it right out of the spigot, but. I mean, that's the ad right there. Right. If you see somebody loading in medical waste and uh, turkey necks. And clean, and pure water. And then they turn a faucet and water comes out <laughs> and the, the inventor takes a swig. It's like that old uh, poster that used to hang in my uh, lunchroom where it was the If Life Gives You Lemons, Make Lemonade poster. But it was a picture of a man with a hopper on the top of his head that a, a bunch of lemons were falling into the hopper. And then his nose was a spigot. Wait, what? And he was holding a glass of lemonade under his nose. Is, is lemonade dripping out of his nostrils? Lemonade is coming out of his nostril and the top of his head is like a lemonade grinder. Okay, this poster is now the subject of this show. It's Is this a photograph or is it a it's a No, cartoon? it's like a 70s drawing that was kind of it looked like the type of thing that would be in a New Yorker cartoon. And they hung this in your cafeteria? It was in the cafeteria <laughs> and I looked at it every single day throughout elementary school wondering why would anyone drink a glass of lemonade that came out of a man's nose? Why a man would be involved at all? You could just have a machine that processed. The poster could just be a machine. Yeah. But what it was saying well, well, was... Well, even the metaphor is weird. Like, you know, the bad things that come your way are not getting crammed into your head. Well, and it's not wait your, a minute. Are they not? And it's not your nose that's no, the engine of... I, I took it to mean that your bad thoughts, your bad vibes were just like lemons coming into your head through a hopper <laughs> and that you needed to turn those bad vibes into nose lemonade, which is, as everyone knows, the greatest. And that's happening in your sinuses somewhere? Yeah, yeah. According to this poster. I don't know. I've always pictured this being an external process. It's a kid with a lemonade stand. Life's yeah. little ills come up and, you know, the kid just stirs some sugar into the pitcher. That would have made this poster more appealing, certainly. And it would have made If it, you're eating, but it's for, in a cafeteria. But for me as a kid, it's, it set in motion an idea, I mean, a, an image in my head of any function machine, a function machine being something where you put, it has an input and an output. Yeah. Uh, any function machine now, when I picture it, is a man with a hopper on the top of his head and the end result is coming out of his nose, which is a, a faucet like on the back of your house. Right. So that is that was also true of Brian Apple's and uh, and Paul Baskus's initial like test run machine. And they were super excited about the results and it did appear to be life-changing uh, technology. Yeah, that's a game changer. Because not only 
I mean, we're not even talking about going and mining the landfills uh, of the world. We are producing on an on a daily, hourly basis an incredible amount of waste. Even now, I'm sorry, I should say that differently. We create more and more waste every day. It's not like even now, like we're like we're we, we've tamped it down, <laughs> but it's still <laughs> right. Like we're famously we good. St- we still have to do it. Uh, we you know we're making something on the order of tens of billions of tons of plastic garbage annually that's just going i don't know where it's going into your recycling bin and then going through some recycling theater and tens of millions of tons a day of uh, plastic well ten yeah right tens of millions of tons a day of pla- just plastic let alone all the other stuff right. So, uh, Brian Apple being I, a, I was just seeing a, something in the news yesterday about how the, they were looking at the deepest, rarest, deepest sea creatures from the deepest part of the oceans, which all now have one thing in common. They all have plastic in their digestive they systems. They all have plastic. Like, even if they're miles and miles beneath the surface. That's right. And, and environmental processes uh, will break down plastic in the ocean but all it does is break it down into smaller pieces of plastic. Right. Like the, the stuff that's good is the stuff that the sun will turn into. Littler pieces of plastic that can be swallowed more easily, get into more critters, more right. systems of more critters, and do more damage. Well, so Brian Apple uh, started to look around for uh, logical places for this technology to be commercially applied. And one of the things he found was that one of the most difficult waste products to deal with is actually animal offal from uh, industrial food processing. Um, Can't they just make dog food out of it or something? Well, they they traditionally have made dog food out of the tons and tons and tons of gross innards and bones and feathers and fur from slaughtered animals. I always say awful, by the way. Awful. But it's it. I think I just looked it up. Offal is preferred. Offal. Awful also has the problem of being confused with the adjective. With, uh, which it is, also is. It's, but, it's totally apt, but it is not etymologically related. No, no, but that's the kind of humor that you like, that you keep expecting we'll get a bell that, that everyone on Facebook is, objects to me not rewarding you for. I don't like this idea that just because I awful, make a joke awful. that I like it. Do you think I have ever liked a single <laughs> joke that I've made? Do you I think know. That, is there anything in, in myself that I like about that? That's why I don't reward you because I see the agony on your face <laughs> at being forced to be such a dad. He wants to feel bad about this and should be made to feel bad about this. Let's just say viscera. Viscera, sure. Well, but it's more than viscera because oh, there's wait. bones and... Oh, yeah. And, viscera is just yeah, organs, that's right? right. And Teeth and hair. Cartilage. Know? Yeah. Uh, but... A few things have happened in recent years that have changed the economy of the offal viscera cartilage industry. The decline in spam sales. Uh, not not the decline in spam so much as the uh, bovine encephalitis, uh, uh, mad oh, cow disease right. mad scares cow. So- of the 1990s, which in Europe really set a, a, a tone. Uh, less so here in the United States. Yeah, we don't realize how much Europe freaked out. Really freaked out at the thought that you could get a brain-wasting disease from eating cows who had a brain-wasting disease because they'd been fed cows or other animal byproducts. Right? Yeah, the cannibalism aspect of it is what makes it very visceral. It's super visceral, right. And Literally. super gross and very much uh, appeals to a European's sense that um, – Nature, like within European 
enlightened society, there's a much greater there's a greater weight in in sort of educated European cultures put on natural food, natural production of food. What They're, could be more natural than a cow eating another I cow? I know, I know. It's the most <laughs> natural process. But, you know, they are against genetically modified foods in a way that America never really cared that much about. You know, he, over here, it's like an environmentalist movement. But over in Europe, it's much more of a mainstream way of thinking. It's an assumption, yeah, that that's how you should do it. And... And By the way, I still can't give blood in the United States because because I was in Europe at some point in the nineties when the, the when there was a mad cow case. Yeah. Wow, and and they still won't. They have they have not changed the laws. Isn't that interesting? So you know, at some point they will change the laws, and I think there might still be a blanket ban on a lot of gay people for leftover. You know, From aid, the AIDS theory, yeah, huh. and there's. Leftover, the other victimized group, people who took a gap here in Europe. <laughs> well, American food scientists, of course, are somewhat contemptuous of this European fashion. Right. GMOs are, uh, you know, more efficient right. and well, and they say feed more people. We've and, been genetically modifying food ever since prehistoric times because that's all that Mendelian genetics is. There's right? nothing inherently bad about. An altered food. But in, in Europe, a lot of GMO foods are banned. And in Europe, a, after the mad cow era, uh, laws went in that banned feeding animals animal waste just across the board. So it wasn't just feeding cows to cows. It was you couldn't – you could no longer feed turkeys to turkeys. Is it always A to A? Can you, can you no. feed cows to turkeys? You cannot feed cows to turkeys. You can't – I got another question. Can yeah. you feed turkeys to cows? You cannot feed turkeys to cows. I think you can you can make dog food out of those things and feed all those things to dogs because yeah. dogs are disgusting. Total loophole. Uh, but you don't want to feed – you're not going to feed meat to vegetarian animals. Can you feed a so. duck to a chicken to a turkey? Uh, for a der turk gherkin? Yeah, a der turk gherkin. I don't think so. But in America, you still can. Uh, but there was some suggestion that those laws were going to change in the United States at the in the late 90s, early 2000s, because it seemed to be that was – there was a mad cow fear here in the States at the same time, and it seemed like that's the direction things were going. But more than that even, I don't think we fully appreciate the tonnage of offal and viscera produced in the food manufacturing industry in America today. Um, paint, paint me a picture. I don't John. I don't want I don't want to paint you a picture because it is so so gross. How much like for instance the um uh, just the butterball company alone produces 1 billion pounds of turkey a year. Now that's the that's the good stuff. That's, that's what you want to buy. That's the good part of the turkey that you, that ends up on grocery store shelves. One billion pounds of turkey. If you can picture the number of turkeys that you would have to process, and I use that term very gently, uh, and how much of a turkey is not the part of the turkey that you end up wanting? Like we just eat the turkey breast for all intents and purposes. I mean, we eat the the good part of a turkey, but there's an awful lot of bad part of a turkey. And to process a billion pounds of, I mean, Butterball Turkey Company is proud to say that they make a billion pounds of turkey a year. They are less forthcoming about how much other poundage 
that they discard. But you can imagine it might be on the same order of magnitude. Uh, probably at least. And so as uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Apfel is looking for... I like how you pronounce his name differently every time. Apfel? Apple? Appel? It was Appel, then it was Apfel, now it's Apfel. <laughs> it's not Apfel, though. There's no <laughs> F. I really wish it were Apfel, and I think that's probably the derivation of the name, because Apfel is a common yeah, German name. Yeah. Appel. Does it mean Apple? I don't know. No, Apfel does, I think. Yeah, yeah, with an F, that's what I mean. But A-P-P-E-L, I don't know. I'm not doing it, it uh, justice. Appel. Let's say, let's settle on Appel. Je m'appelle Appel. <laughs> um, he contracted with the Butterball Turkey Company to build his first operational large-scale, industrial-scale, I guess, processing plant, anything into oil plant, uh, to be built right next to the big butterball turkey processing plant in Carthage, Missouri. So instead of taking all their turkey viscera to wherever they've been taking it, they can just dump, take it across the road and say, your problem now. Yeah, they had been selling it to dog food companies, but... And uh, freezer chimichangas. Right, freezer chimichangas. <laughs> whatever, <and laughs> whatever else has the most suspect non-meat in it. <laughs> Serving it to cows uh, by, by dyeing it green and making it look like grass. If the cow chooses to eat it, the laws do not apply. So we just have to make it look very appetizing. But the the predictions of the efficiency of this platform were pretty darn rosy. If you read the the press releases at the time, they were touting its efficiency to the degree that they were, you know, they were confident that they were going to be making 10 tons of pure gasoline a day, uh, 20,000 gallons of pure water. They were going to be almost instantly profitable because of this sort of 15% energy cost, like 85% efficiency of their production. Which is unheard of in any other kind of biodiesel or anything. Right. Um, but the way you're telling the story makes me think those projections did not pan out. Well, a few things went wrong as they started to build their giant factory. And the thing is that this technology was pretty widely recognized by everybody that took a look at it as being, yeah, this is game-changing stuff. I mean, they ran it by every scientist and, and a lot of uh, business case people, and there just wasn't, looking at their Philadelphia plant, it was true. They, they would they'd give demonstrations where they would just shovel a bunch of garbage into the front end of a thing, wait a couple of hours, and out the other side came pure oil and... And little piles of carbon, like it, it, it's not like the cold fusion debacle of the eighties where some, where two scientists were like, we did it. It wasn't Theranos where they're like, <laughs> trust us, you get oil. Can we see the oil? No. No. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's musicians. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com slash 
slash start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. No, this was... This worked. This was real, and the science was real. And so they had a lot of support. Um, the Buffets got involved. ConAgra got involved. Um, people were very enthusiastic about Yeah, get it on the ground floor if this is the future. As they were building the processing plant, they had some trouble with a contractor who did some bad welds, and that cost them a bunch of money to go in and fix those welds. Uh, then it took them a while to get exactly at this much larger scale, exactly what the component, uh, you know, uh, they had to fine tune. It didn't scale the way they hoped. Yeah, they had to fine tune it. That took quite a while. And then as soon as they started the factory, uh, the residents of Carthage, <laughs> Missouri, started to complain about a terrible smell that was coming from over there. I like that in Philadelphia, nobody noticed. <laughs> yeah, well, in Philadelphia, they were like, eh, it smells like turkeys. Uh, now, in kind of in retrospect, looking back at it, a lot of the people in Carthage, Missouri at the time, because there are a lot of factories in, in Carthage making mm-hmm. a lot of different things, there was a sense that this new factory opened up and any smell that happened to flit across Carthage, people started to complain and blame on this new turkey processing factory. Yeah, I mean, you'd think if they already have Butterball at all, it's not the sweetest smelling place. Well, sure. I mean, the bad waste is coming right out of a factory that's been there the whole time. Our first apartment when Mindy and I got married was across the street from a slaughterhouse. Was it? And I think it made the rent a bit cheaper. And when the wind changed. Oh, that's a terrible smell. It's a, yeah, it's a life ruining smell. It's ghastly. Um, But- as part of this processing, of course, they are cooking down this waste, which I think maybe used to just come straight out of the butterball plant it's, into a truck. Instead and, of carting it off, yeah. now there's guys stirring tanks. Right. Uh, and it got so bad that the governor of Missouri actually intervened and shut down the anything into oil plant, the thermal uh, polymerization or depolymerization plant, so that they they needed to to remediate the smell, and they did. They installed a bunch of equipment to take the bad smell out of the air and started their process up again. But it turned out that it was not quite – wasn't quite running as smoothly as they'd hoped. And also, the anticipated laws uh, making it illegal to sell animal waste as animal food never came to fruition here in the United States. And so the butterball turkey people said to the thermal depolymerization people, hey, if you want our buckets and buckets, millions of buckets of turkey guts, you're going to have to pay for it. To compete with Purina. Because Purina wants to buy it at, you know, 25 bucks a pound. And so you're going to have to beat their offer. So all of a sudden they had these costs associated with the input into their machine. And they were running at a loss. All of a sudden, the $80 a a pound they were expecting to make off of their junk, it turned out they now needed to appeal to the government. And they did. They appealed successfully to the government that they were making a kind of biofuel and got a government subsidy in the form of a dollar a barrel or something, enough that it put them into the black, but just barely. 
Which maybe makes sense, again, with these infant technologies. You right. know, give them a little leg up and see if it actually is, uh, see if it can become sustainable as it scales. And that's what everybody still said. So in 2003, a very famous article in Discover Magazine called Anything Into Oil was published. And it was an article that detailed the, this whole system. And it was published right at its infancy. So it, it talked about the, the Philadelphia machine. And it talked about the building of the Carthage plant. But the Carthage plant had yet to come online. And this article touted this technology in such a way that it became the most responded to article in Discover Magazine to date. It's funny how pop science can change the world in a way that actual science cannot. It's a little bit scary because you're giving a lot of power to people who are not being um, peer-reviewed. and Right. Well, and, and the thing about Discover was that this was peak Discover Magazine. And to futurelings who obviously don't have never yeah. heard of a magazine. We should explain right. We should explain what magazines were. <laughs> I was in a drugstore yesterday, and I was remembering how the magazine counter used to be the width yeah. of the store at the front. Oh, those were it's so great. It's a little tiny shelf. It's so much smaller than the greeting cards. There were so many wonderful magazines. And as you know, I worked in a magazine store. Yes. Um, it was not called a magazine store at the time. No, newsstand. Newsstand was the word we used. Uh, but Discover Magazine was a popular science magazine written for a lay audience that was interested in real science. So it wasn't, I mean, even the magazine Popular Science spends an awful lot of time talking about stuff that isn't science at all. Popular Science became a weird... Is that true? What's in Popular Science now? UFOs? I, I mean, a, a lot of stuff that seems like sort of libertarian bunker culture stuff in Popular Science. Like, there's a weird political angle to some of the stuff they put in I love there. when somebody weird buys a magazine. <laughs> Suddenly the National Enquirer is just some arm of, uh, of uh, you know, Trump Enterprise. But Discover was the rare kind of layperson's science magazine that actually did a pretty good job of digesting real science and making it readable. You know, it was not, it was not especially dumbed down. It was just made intelligible. And they did feature articles on real hard science stuff. And they, but they also had like... That's a service too. Get people interested in STEM right. fields who might otherwise be intimidated by them. And it wasn't like Walter Scott's personality parade, but there were, you know, they did do things where they had smaller articles about, hey, here's an interesting scientist that's doing something weird over here. And it was a magazine that really filled an important niche. And this was pre-internet. So maybe the heyday of magazines. Yeah, that's, that's where you would hear about these kind of buzzworthy, everybody's talking about this article. Right. So this article came out and it made, in this very popular magazine, and it made a tremendous splash. It got people extremely excited because the article was very careful to say, we know that there are lots of these cold fusion stories that end up not panning out. Mm. But everybody involved in this, everyone has looked at this and they all agree it works. But then the Carthage plant didn't produce the results that they expected. And it wasn't the technology. It was all these other factors, the economic factors, the scalability factors, the fact that the contractor did a bad job. This is another be skeptical of capitalism data point, you know? Like even if the underlying business idea is unassailable, all it takes is a bad contractor or an right. un unpredictable public relations 
the people De- debacle and then the wrong people can win. Yeah. And the, the locals don't like the smell and, and the butterball people decide they want to profit from the, you know, like everybody's very short sighted, right? If butterball had said, you know what, you you can just take this for free because we want this technology to succeed. We want there to be a butterball future where you're going to have one of these at, the end of every butterball plant and then we will pro- we'll, we'll profit from the oil and the you know like yeah. you can see different ways where this technology would benefit almost any industry but apple apple is a capitalist and he's trying to profit from this invention mm-hmm. and so rather than look at this as like oh this is a new end stage of every industrial process where one of these like um, little plants sits at the end of your factory line and takes the waste and turns it back into these most refined elements. For him to work, it's got to be his business. Right. right. It has to be a business. And so he predictably seeks a round of funding as part of an initial public offering, which is in a lot of cases, in a lot of economic cases, the beginning of the end for a company. Your initial public offering. I mean, Snapchat made billions in their initial public offering, and then that valuation just started plummeting uh, almost the next day. So he sought intervention, capitalist intervention into his project, and they could not quite get um, the IPO failed. It didn't, they had an unusual method of trying to raise money. It wasn't just a let's sell stock on the open market. Were they trying to throw turkey necks into a big vat and hope money would come out? Because that's not going to work. The capitalist version of that, right? (laughs) Yeah, that's, isn't all capitalism (laughs) the capitalist version of that? Something called a Dutch auction where you were, you know, uh, where you're. I like all this game theory, when all this game theory (laughs) crap gets trotted out in, uh, in open markets. Pretty crazy. But in the end, Apple lost control of the company. He resigned as CEO. It went through Chapter 11. What's what's the tragedy is that in 2008 it won the most innovative patent award from the Innovative Patent Award Society. So it was still humming away. And in 2009 it filed for Chapter 11. Oh, <laughs> so it didn't file for Chapter 11 because the process didn't work. It did. It filed for Chapter 11 because the business didn't work. And now we are. Now we have nothing into oil. It continues. We have the opposite of anything into oil. The business continues to be extremely appealing in theory to almost everybody that takes a look at it. The the Carthage plant now and the technology was finally through several owners purchased by a Canadian company called the Ridgeline Energy uh, Services Company, which is one of those giant Canadian energy services companies that doesn't even really have... There aren't even any articles about it in business magazines. <laughs> what does that mean? It's a Russian oligarch who's really into fracking? I mean, it's some kind of thing <laughs> where they've figured out a way to keep themselves like really on the down low. Um, but they're a major energy company. But but of course, they're looking at it strictly from, again, a cost-benefit analysis. Like, is this going to beat? When does this beat, you know, shale, oil, shale? gas or whatever it's called. Right. And until it does, you know, we're not going to go crazy about it. But from a technology standpoint, from a recycling standpoint, it already works, just not at this industrial level. If if you were to build one of those Philadelphia-sized little plants and just stick it at the end of almost any, I mean, you could make them in shipping containers and 
Do we get to the point where it becomes a you know one of these developing world everybody gets uh, a water desalinator kind of a thing? Like I want a little tiny one I can put in my garage. Well, that's exactly what it should be. And so, fast forward a little bit. Um, a man named James Holm, who was a uh, like a lifelong sailor, was going through the Panama Canal one time and saw all the plastic waste floating on the Atlantic side and became appalled and started a company called Clean Oceans International uh, who partnered with a man named Swaminathan Ramesh. Nice. nice who, who has a, a, you know, a biochemistry PhD. And uh, Ramesh and Holm kind of formed a similar partnership to uh, where, where there was a scientist and a business person, except in this case, it's a sailor and a chemist. Walk into a bar. And they, they are trying to apply this same technology or a, or a modification of this technology to cleaning up the oceans. And what they want to do is build these little plants, put them actually in shipping containers and put them out to sea where you can gather all the plastic and detritus and flotsam in various like gyres on the ocean and process that stuff there. And you process it into the fuel that keeps the thing running? Yeah, that you process it into diesel fuel, which it keeps the boat running and and continues the process of, of you know, it, it becomes a perpetual motion machine almost. I love when nanotech is not nano at all, because this is just nanotech, but it's giant. Yeah. Like, what if these things become sentient, right? <laughs> uh, but, but crazily, they are talking about their process with the same kind of hyperbolic, like, well, you know, we're going to start this and... And uh, we'll be processing 10,000 pounds of garbage per day by next March and all this kind of thing. And their companies, Clean Oceans International, which is a nonprofit, and EcoFuel Technologies are also finding it difficult to scale exactly so that they're manufacturing these, these processing plants in a way that they, that they can actually apply this technology to, to the goal of cleaning up the oceans. Um, there was a company started by a man named J.C. Bell who was using a different process, but but a similar like biochemical process of of processing like agricultural waste into gasoline and, and fuel. But he was funded by Herman Cain and their whole game was that they were going to process fuel into jet fuel and sell it to the Navy. So I guess my first question is, aren't we living in a golden age of, you know, Bond villain type billionaires that will actually fund something like this until it gets done right? And you're telling me Herman Cain is the best we can throw at this? This is what's crazy to me because this technology, I've yet to read an article in the years, and, and Discover Magazine wrote three follow-up articles. Which they kind of had to do, right? Because people to. were like, hey, what happened to that thing that yeah. you sold the world on? Yeah, like nine months ago, you said that nine months from now, the world <laughs> is going to be completely changed and it doesn't appear to be what's going on. So they wrote all these follow-up articles talking about like, well, it was just the problem. The problem was that the, we ordered these screws and they were the wrong <laughs> screws. But by nine months from now... Discover Magazine is now 80% <laughs> corporate <laughs> apologia for uh, anything into oil ink. But for some reason, no mad billionaire, no Elon Musk or even Warren Buffett, at Warren Buffett, who actually had a stake in the original ConAgra ownership of this process yeah. or partial ownership, no one has made it their, their pet project to just say, 
this is going to cost money to get to a place where it's usable. We're not going to make some poor business guy go through 20 rounds of funding. We're just going to turn this, we're going to scale this up. And this is going to be a thing where we're going to para drop it into villages around the world. And it's a, it's a public utility rather than a for-profit scheme. I assume it's because it's not sexy, right? Like Elon Musk wants a sleek car. He can shoot into space. Or he wants, he thinks Grimes will get turned on by a high-speed train or whatever. But basically, this process, as ecologically amazing as it is, you're turning one kind of gross goop into a different kind of goop. But but for as, as we as we discussed earlier, like for those of us that are every day sitting in our kitchens trying to decide whether this little Chinese food container is food waste, recycling, or garbage, this is about the sexiest technology. I can think of. And the day that they reduce it in scale to a thing that's the size of your trash compactor in your kitchen, where everything you produce, you put down a hole and it turns it into another little pile of frankincense and myrrh and cooking oil, (laughs) you know, it, it really is transformative. Uh, I hope we're speaking to an audience for whom it's it's now second nature, and, th- and they're thinking, just hang in there. Just hang in there. You're a few. You're five years and ten Discover articles away from from getting this thing done. <laughs> it's gonna work more than any other omnibus entry. I feel like this one is a um, a snapshot of a moment in time because I really do believe that this is the future. Whether it's this technology or another, I think this is. This is one hope of uh, staving off the catastrophe we fear may never come, or we fear may come soon. This is the catastrophe we fear, hope will never. This could be the invention that stays off the catastrophe and makes Omnibus totally uh, obsolete. Well, no, I mean, Omnibus will still be the best library that you ever visited. But it will be a little cooler when the world actually ends, you have to admit. (sighs) You're right. And that concludes Anything Into Oil, entry 056.EX3729, certificate number 26207, in the Omnibus. Now, listeners, we are well aware that uh, social media uh, has vanished thousands of years ago. It's, you know, it's... Got turned into oil. It's like, you know, bubonic plague is to us. You know, you think of it as a... as an awful thing that took out a a different ancient people. Or an awful thing. (laughs) But if you... uh, if you do still have some of these platforms that your jellyfish tentacles or, or aspen roots or whatever you um, type in hashtags with uh, can access, John and I were always at Omnibus Project on all of these platforms. Uh, he was at John Roderick on Twitter and Instagram. I was at Ken Jennings on Twitter. Uh, we received uh, digital communication from our uh, colleagues, peers, like-minded enthusiasts, at our new email address, theomnibusproject at gmail.com. These enthusiasts would sometimes congregate to share their own findings, opinions, mansplaining uh, on the Facebook Futurelings group, a delightful place to be. I hope it still uh, uh, persists in your era so you can check it out. And if you would like to send physical items of any kind, uh, artifacts, for our perusal, Uh, We have graciously made ourselves available to you to send us your free stuff. Um, No matter what you send us, we will turn it into a light-grade 
golden uh, cooking oil mm-hmm. after we um, enjoy it and take selfies with it. And little tiny piles of platinum and... That's and, right. Uh, you know, whatever, feathers, platinum and feathers. John's going to extract little piles of stuff to take to some weird rare coin shop where some weird old guy will give him cash for it. Uh, you can send anything like that to Omnibus Project, P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Anything into Omnibus. <laughs> uh, Futurelings, from our vantage point in your distant past, back when we still threw garbage away, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. Although, as Ken said earlier, we apparently are actually praying that the catastrophe comes so that we become relevant and... and yeah, we're not exactly shorting the catastrophe. <laughs> yeah, right. We're not... We're ambivalent about the catastrophe we fear may never come. I guess this podcast sells more advertising before the catastrophe than after, so that that's good for us. It's interesting the wording here because we hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But it... Also, sometimes I forget and read it differently where... Um, where I say the catastrophe we fear may never come, which is... Yeah, I'm not going to stick up for diagramming the sentence that I... Um, <laughs> that you wrote, <laughs> wrote we, on the back of an envelope? Didn't we write that in like 45 <laughs> seconds when we were about to record the first show? I'm pretty sure. And, <laughs> hey, Ken and John, you're going to have to say this literally hundreds of times. Yeah, I, I don't care. Are, those, like, are those Danish? I'm going to get a glass, glass of water, John. You go, go, go ahead and... I'm like, oh. <laughs> if the worst comes soon in this recording, like... All our recordings may be our final word. But if providence allows, perhaps you will be able to take these omnibus project recordings and turn them into oil. Somebody on the uh, Future Links page was talking about how the name for that would be phonosynthesis. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> if, you, if you could actually derive life-giving metabolic energy from uh, the it, podcast it you were listening to. It would be phonosynthesis. I thought that was delightful. And... Um, you know what? I'm going to give them a bell. There's really no way we can compete with the uh, with the workshop jokes of thousands of people who have a week to think about. That's it. true. That's true. Although they so the real omnibus is in your, the friend you make along the way. <laughs> like, that's the, it's the comments you read the week after on the fan page. Anyway, we'll be back with you soon for another entry in the omnibus. 